Welcome to the second episode of the I Am Kinda Normal podcast. This is Zach, and uh, I am here with my friend Gabe Learn. He is a grad student studying immunology at the University of California, Merced. So, Gabe, um, what first got you interested in immunology? I never wanted to study immunology. That was never a goal of mine. Um, (laughs) When I was in college, yeah, of course there's immunology. People know about that. Um, And I always wanted to do research. But I always thought that immunology was too close to clinical. It was too close to medicine. And I wanted to steer as far away from that as possible because everyone and their mother wanted to study medicine. Everyone wants to be a doctor, at least in college. But uh, I wanted to avoid that completely. And then I ended up getting into the, uh, the grad program at Merced. And the most interesting projects and the most interesting topics were in immunology. So I saw, like, okay, well, maybe, maybe I should get into that. And now that I'm in it, uh, the aspect of immunology that I'm studying is actually pretty cool. Um, not what I, what I thought of when I thought of immunology when I was an undergrad. So uh, that's kind of how I got to where I am. Hmm. So it sounds like, sounds like you sort of went in with, with this idea and then of like, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with, with the typical doctor route because you felt it was too typical. But then you found out that there was all these exciting, there were all these exciting things going on in that field of immunology. Um, you had said, you'd mentioned something about a specific aspect of it or a specific area of study that you're in right now. What is it, what is it that you found interesting that you've decided to pursue research-wise? Well, the real reason why I wanted to avoid uh, medicine was because I always thought it was more interesting to find out what's wrong with you than how to treat you. Like, sure, I'll, I'll figure out what's wrong with you, and then I'll tell a doctor, and then he can treat you, right? So I never, it just didn't seem that interesting. Um, the aspect of medicine where you, you know, have to work on these cures or work on these treatments and then administer said treatment, right? But um, when I got to grad school, my, my main focus was to figure out, all right, I want to do cancer research, you know? What's the next plague? Pick one, you know? And that's cancer, right? Everyone wants to cure cancer. Uh, and there's a reason, because it's, it's huge, it's massive. Uh, we never realized how much cancer there really was because our, uh, our techniques and our tools for... Uh, for detecting cancer, we're just not that good. And now that we've gotten so much better at it, we realize that, oh, everything, has, everything is cancer. Everyone has cancer, right? So uh, cancer is this huge thing that we just need to attack. Uh, and I was thinking selfishly, it's like, okay, when I graduate, what kind of job am I gonna get, you know? Well, with biology, we're gonna you know, work on diseases. Okay, great, what's that gonna be, right? So it's cancer. And then when I got into the program, it turned out that um, Merced has not that many cancer labs, but they do have a couple stem cell labs. Like, okay, well, that's, that's also perfect. Regenerative medicine, right? Let me inject you with uh, a drug, and it's going to, like, either give you stem cells or um, just stoke the fire of the stem cells that you already have, right? And then you get all this regeneration, and then you can, uh, you'll heal from whatever it is that, that's going on with you, right? But then I also found out that the stem cell labs that there are were um, so-called hematopoietic stem cell labs. So these are the stem cells that produce your immune cells. So that's really uh, the area of immunology that I'm in. And so I'm studying these, these stem cells and the cells they produce, but not just, uh, not just all the stem cells in your body right, that make all these immune cells, but uh, I'm studying the stem cells and the immune cells they produce that are specifically uh, present during field development. So uh, when you're in your mom's stomach as you're, or womb as you're, um, you're developing, those are the, the immune cells that I'm studying. Mm. So we know very little, really, about 
uh, fetal immune development. And it's, it's really cool to be on the cusp of uh, a burgeoning field, right? And it's really cool to be finding things and discovering things that no one else knows. And that's, I think that's really cool. That's, so that's, that's what science is all about, right? That's super exciting. Yeah. I mean, that little explorer in me gets excited the way that you're describing that as yeah, for sure. being on the cusp of the newest developments. Yeah. And I, I heard you sort of tie in cancer and cancer research into this. What exactly yeah, is the, the potential? Purpose. Yeah, what exactly is the link between what you're studying now and cancer research? Well, we could dive real deep into that. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, we want the laypersons, uh, and you're right. pretty you're pretty good at providing laypersons overviews of this stuff. Yeah. You've you've broken things down in pretty simple terms okay. for me. So, for our audience, you know, simple so, terms. So when we best. think about cancer, cancer is anything where a cell in your body uh, it starts to grow and divide out of control, because usually there are mechanisms and tools in place, checks and balances, if you will, uh, that control cell growth. Because if things grow out of control then your organs and your, your different um, organ systems can't function properly, right? So maybe a good example of that would be, you know, a brain tumor. You know? So you have a certain amount of neurons that are doing certain jobs, right? But if you have a, a certain neuron that is um, growing and dividing out of control, then the neurons around it can't function as they should, right? Or uh, another good example is in the pancreas, you know, it produces all of this. Actually, I don't actually know what it produces, but it, it produces <laughs> important molecules. We don't need to know. Yeah, for need, your yeah. um, mm. uh, for control of your glucose concentration, I think. That sounds, so, sounds right so to me. So it regulates yeah. Yeah. Uh, sugar in your body, mm -hmm. I think. But you know, I'm, I'm not a pancreatic biologist. Yeah. But anyway, yes. so the, uh, there are certain ducts within your pancreas where all these... Uh, Things that are produced are are being shuttled from place to place, right? From the pancreas and out of the body. So if you have, say, those ducts growing out of control, so that the duct itself is so uh, clogged by the, those cells that it can't function anymore as a as a channel. So unwanted growth. Yeah. That's that's out of proportion with the body's needs and the natural balance of the body. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's of like its, I mean, its, basically, it's microbiome. In no, all, no, I would. I mean, microbiome is a it's very is a specific, specific word that yeah, yeah. doesn't quite apply. Applying, to that I'm applying it too broadly there. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. when you have cells in your body <sighs> that turn cancerous and they produce tumors, uh, and they go out of control, then whatever organ they were a part of isn't able to function the way it should. Makes perfect so sense. So that's yeah. really the reason why uh, tumors are bad. Because mm -hmm. tumors are bad. And that ties into the. Um, immunology, that sort of was a bridge for you to get into immunology? I mean, so that was the original impetus in okay. wanting to go into, um, into grad school. Uh, you know, I was just trying to hedge my bets okay. and get an, an advanced degree so that I could find a job in a pharmaceutical company yeah. or a biotech company some, at some point after graduation, right? Yeah. And I wanted to make sure that this, the skills that I had uh, were applicable to the problems that you know, biotech companies and pharmaceutical companies were trying to attack. Mm. So it was me just trying to target my gotcha. future career. And immunology is a really, really good field for that. I would say that the, the vast majority of the cancer treatments and also other treatments that are outside of cancer biology, a lot of those are coming out of, uh, what do they call it, like uh, 
immune treatments, right? Yeah. So we try to uh, immune therapies. So we try to control the immune system, either uh, inducing it to attack, like say a tumor, mm-hmm. or um, stop attacking your own body. In, in the case of that like, makes autoimmune diseases. Sense now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if we understand the immune system, then we can regulate it and control it, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. there's the idea that like this thing called CAR T cells. So let's make designer T cells that we're going to give to injecting to use that, and mm-hmm. it's going to attack the whatever kind of um, drug resistant flu that you have. Mm-hmm. Right? That would be awesome if we mm-hmm. could just design something to attack a specific thing. Then it would be that would be a great way of dealing with almost any kind of disease, no matter what it was. That makes right? perfect makes and perfect sense. Yeah, that idea comes out of um, understanding how T cells work and how mm-hmm. they're very specific to certain um, pathogens in your body. Mm-hmm. So. Huh? Yeah, immune therapies are cool. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to that. Well, um, so I'm curious about growing up. Did you did you foresee yourself going into say the medical field, or did you how how early on did you feel like you're going down this path, or what were some of the other paths that you were contemplating when you were younger? I, mean, I thought science was cool. I like mm-hmm. science. I grew up with zoo books. I don't know if you've read zoo books. I feel like, like I eight, have. You know? Little kid magazines with uh, oh, animals. You know, I, I've read a few. I read a few yeah. of those. They, they're coming back to mind. Yeah. So I thought zoo books was pretty awesome. So that's what got yeah. me into biology, probably. Um, I also wanted to not be a chemist because my dad's a chemist. Oh. Okay. So you know, I, I went off the beaten path about two inches, <laughs> and I studied biology. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what I, I thought was possible. Right. But, you know, early on, also, I wanted to be a cook. I wanted to be a, be a chef. Which, by the way, I will add, you're a fantastic cook. Fine, Thank fantastic you. host. You're absolutely right. I am a fantastic <laughs> cook. I, I've had the pleasure of being over to your house um, for different gatherings. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you're, you're a fantastic host just all, all around. So I could see how you would, you, would, um, you would look at potentially being a chef as, as another option, which I'd, I'd say um, your skill set is pretty good. So if, you, if you're ever, you know, I mean, <laughs> if, yeah. if you're ever uh, in that ballpark too, I'm sure you would be a very successful chef. I mean, it's one of those things where I always <clears throat> want to challenge myself. Mm-hmm. So like, okay, well, what is it that no one else does? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, people don't really cook. I mean, 12-year-old Gabriel thought that, at least, mm-hmm. right? And then, like, okay, well, of all the people that make food, like, what is the most difficult thing to do? Like, oh, yeah, baking. Okay, so... Out of all the baking, what's the most difficult thing to bake? Like bread, obviously. So I wanted to be a bread baker. Mm. Um, I thought that it was the most difficult and the most challenging. So that's kind of where I or where I positioned myself when I got into that. Mm. And uh, yeah, things just kind of took off. Yeah, and uh, and uh, what did you do, uh, or what were the years, and what was the setting of when you became a baker? Because I know you've referred to that a little bit. I mean, like yeah, junior high. There was mm. a class called foods. That's okay. exactly what it sounds like. Home ec, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. It was home ec without all the math. So oh, that sounds good. Learn, you didn't learn how to balance a checkbook or, yeah. you know, I don't know, whatever else you're supposed to learn in home ec. I don't know. They're taking home ec. Yeah. Right? But we learned how to cook all these different recipes. So I, I got started in that. And then in high school, there was a class called Culinary Arts. Right? And then we learned how, it was an RP class. So it was supposed to be for the people that, you know, weren't necessarily going to go to college. Uh, but they were, they should get job training, right? So, you know, it's like, you know, auto shop or like wood shop, all these kind of classes. But it was cooking. It was culinary arts. So it was supposed to be the first uh, the first semester of culinary school. If you were to graduate and go out to culinary school, that was 
what it was designed to be. Oh, wow. So you learn all these basics, right? And, uh, you know, the mother sauces and, like, how to hold a knife and, like, different cuts and whatnot, um, different cooking methods and whatnot, things like that. So we learned that. And it was all about the science of cooking. So that I thought that was really cool. So, like, oh, yeah, mm. we can, like, marry these two things. There's the theme have. right there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, why does food react the way it does? Why does it behave the way it does? And let's control that and make something. And that's, that's how I got into um, all the cooking. Yeah, mm. pretty much. Well, two things, two things I note from um, what you've been sharing there is uh, one, your interest in science, and um, I share that. I share that to some degree, but um, you know, for I just me, know how things work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you're you also sort of hinted at that at the beginning where you mentioned that basically you're more interested in the causes of disease rather than the treatment, um, and that that's something that was sort of on your mind is like if we could figure out how these things work, the two go together, obviously. But um, but definitely that scientific impetus, and also when you mentioned that you find it very um, enjoyable or exciting to be on the forefront of a new a new yeah, science, sure. basically, you yeah, know, a new absolutely. a new branch of science, and that's that all says explorer to me. I had a lot of that when I was younger. Um, it still comes out in some ways. I'm like an intellectual explorer <laughs> of sorts is how I've sort of manifested that. But um, I relate to that. I can feel that like when I was younger, you know, I used to used to love reading about space, all these different things, anything that was pushing the boundaries. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it comes down to if you want to know how something works, then you have to either look at it at its, its most basic at the beginning, you know? Okay, well, why is... Why does this tumor happen? You know, okay. Why why does the cell turn cancerous? That's a question that you want to you want to ask, right? And then maybe later on down the road, like, okay, well, we, well, since we want to understand it, how can we stop it from turning cancerous, right? So I mean, I guess there's the treatment side, and there's the uh, the diagnostic side, shall we say, right? And they're they're both important, but at their core, the what I'm interested in is well, but how? Which I wanna, is one level. Deeper, I want to put yeah. the pieces together, right? And I just want to like, oh yeah, you just, you know, it, it's because of this, you know, your humors are bad, right? That's too handy. Sometimes my humor is bad. Sometimes my humor is bad. That's, bad. That's a really bad. <laughs> That's joke. really bad. See, exactly. That's very proud of that. I'm, I'm, I'm glad because of the multi-layered effect of that. Just throwing that in there. So, um, yeah, well, the way that I look at it is, um, you know, it, the research is what makes the diagnostics, um, is what makes diagnostics um, possible because um, the diagnosis is usually based on the, the basic science the is the underpinning of all yeah. medicine right mm. a, a doctor can do nothing without a scientist right and yeah. sometimes so the doctor is a scientist but you know that other that causes other other problems because then you have to split your time between uh, research and treatment right so it's definitely better to have a, what's it called um, division of labor division of labor exactly mm -hmm. Yeah. Specialization, division of labor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, uh, <laughs> that's something that, that, um, has certainly has its pros and cons in society, but in general, I mean, the larger the society, the more specialized it is. And, and these days, especially, you know, it's, it's oftentimes more efficient to have people, you know, in, in their own lanes. So I mean, sometimes it's better to have that efficiency in other areas of life. It's not good to have that efficiency, right? Like, you know, we don't have to deal with um, like growing their own food, raising their own cattle or chickens. I would be dead right now, probably, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't have much in terms of survival skills, to be right. honest. But the problem with that is we have this division of labor like you're talking about, and then there's 
the people that are living in this world now, some of them are in, in the more affluent parts of the world, are, uh, th there is no conception of meat as animal. Or, like, oh, I don't want to see, like, you know, the face of the chicken, or, mm. you know, they don't, there's a complete, like, this separation mm. between, um, well, yeah, like a, a steak on a plate and the cow that it came from, or the, you know, the steer that it came from. And that's, I think that's sad. There should definitely be an appreciation for what that piece of meat was. <laughs> well, certainly when it that's comes... that's where respect comes from. Well, certainly when it comes to meat, I think there's a lot of denial that we do because, um, you know, we don't like the idea of, you know, animals being eaten. I think that, um, yet at the same time, I do think, and I do think that it can be defended philosophically if you look at it the right way. I think, um, I know it was said, and I don't know how how true it is historically or whatever, but I've heard it said that, that like the Native Americans were really good about this, about honoring spiritually the animals that they killed. Yeah, but um, they also knew the animal as the, an animal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, animals will, animals kill, you know, in the wild too. You know, it's like, um, uh, it's like bears. And I mean, bears are very vicious animals and they will just, they're not just teddy bears. They're out there killing other animals. Um, but there's sort of a respect for the ecosystem and the fact that, you know, population control among the different species is a thing. And, uh, and that carnivores play a role in that quite often. So, I mean, there are animals that husband other animals. I can't think of any good examples right now, but like ants grow mushrooms. Mm. And they eat those mushrooms, right? Mm. Uh, so, so, I think it's a different level when it comes to humans versus animals. Of course, both mm. humans and animals kill right um but animals don't raise other animals to kill them for mm. food right that's not something that really happens i don't think this factory farming stuff is very i'm i have a hard time with the factory farming stuff but i admit that i am well, uh, i'm farming. partaking in it <laughs> i'm i'm a bit hypocritical in that regard right now yeah like yeah. um if you don't want to think of your, your chicken drumstick as a, a bird and you can't see it in that shape you just want to see it as like you know fried chicken on your plate there's something wrong the mcnugget right? i mean there's there's that there's don't nothing. even get me started on the mcnugget oh well, yeah I, that that's in a whole different category I mean, there that's recycle but... you know reduce reuse or whatever but yeah you know. yeah but it's pretty much like what's the most uh innocuous the cutest form of a dead animal that we can create and um, I do think it's something that's important to wrestle with. And I want to also add in there that I am not necessarily defending meat eating um, or... There's nothing wrong with meat eating. I don't, think, I, don't, I don't think there really is either. I, I do think if in my ideal world, um, I, let's say I trend vegetarian, I trend vegan even. And I've dabbled with that, with both of those uh, at points in my life. Um, and strictly, almost entirely just for practicality's sake and in terms of what my nutritional needs are and my, and a big part of it is just my time, time constraints and lack of energy towards uh, food preparation, as we've talked about. Um, I've, I've settled right now for a uh, omnivore's diet and I'm comfortable with that right now. I feel like I, I know what I'm doing. Is the best steak. <laughs> Make yourself. It's the cheapest. There we go. There we go. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah. But that's a that's a fascinating 
topic and the ethics of it. Hmm. Um, I I definitely think that as humans we are, well, we live and we're born and we decay and we die and we become basically food for the earth, basically in the end. Everything has a cycle and dies. You pointed to a very interesting distinction between basically raising animals for the purpose of killing them. And I think even that can be done in a humane way if you're giving them a good life in reference to like what it's their like a life is. Mine, she used to live in uh, in the mountains, mm -hmm. you know, and her mom, her parents would raise rabbits. So they would, you know, you know they would breed because that's what rabbits do. And then I don't know how old they were before they, they slaughtered them. But let's just say they were three or four weeks old, you know, they had their fur and stuff and they were... They were like, just like, you know, juvenile age for a rabbit. You know, the kids play with the rabbits because they're adorable and they're like, you know, cute little bunnies. But then, you know, you have to kill them and cook them and eat them and stuff. And is that really, is that wrong? I mean, do they live good lives and all that stuff? Is it ethically wrong to uh, raise an animal to kill it? I mean, you can decide that for yourself. But, yeah, you know, it's, at some point... Uh, my friend and her her sister realized that they were you know eating the bunnies. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that didn't go over well because they're little kids. But yeah, I mean it's it's what they were raised for. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like they were pets. Yeah, and then they just killed the pets. And even if they did do that, it's like okay, well, is it really that different? You know, so <laughs> yeah, there are other questions about that. Well, I think I think for me it, it goes into um, just the way that I've looked at it, and I'm not claiming that there are hard and fast answers on it as. With most questions of ethics, I mean, it's hard to find those hard and fast answers on very many topics. And this is one of those topics where the gray areas are really, really strong and really, really present. And uh, for me, it's all about the life cycle. Has that animal been able to go through its life cycle and um, have a more or, more or less natural existence during that life cycle. If you have them in cages all the time, I don't consider that to be a natural life cycle. That's just, you know, that's just having an animal for the purpose of food. And I think that personally what, what I would like to see is more of the free range sort of sort of deal where the animals are able to live out their life cycle reach adulthood and then some point past adulthood you know as they're as they're declining you know then and they've lived you know a moderately lengthy so life lamb i'm probably not but i don't <laughs> i'm i'm so i'm so naive about you know food processing and all that and 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 all that that i don't know how old the lambs are when they slaughter them i mean lambs are by definition juveniles mm. they're not Sheep. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Or goats, yeah. for that matter. You know, that's true. They're babies. Well, not necessarily babies, but they're they're not adults. That is true. See, I've thought so little about <laughs> even the word lamb. Yeah. That yeah. That even even I mean, with I that, like you're catching the like yeah. goat. Lambs are like this big. You know? Yeah. So they're. Yeah, it's hard. To, that's hard to feel good about, but um, but not passing any judgment. You know, we're we're all working through. I think we're all working through these these issues, and as long as we're able to have conversations about them and a willingness to try to do what we feel is right, I think that, you know, we'll make progress. Yeah, I mean, like, where do the ethics of that lie, though? You know, is it because you feel bad because you have a soft heart and you don't want to kill an animal? Or is there some other mm. reason why it's ethically wrong or right for you to kill an animal and eat it? Which is a fantastic point. And for me, when it comes to ethics, I do rely very much on how does it feel. 
And yet at the same time, I recognize that just having a sentimental, you know, view of that doesn't really line up with nature because nature does not care. <laughs> nature has the life cycles. Nature has um, carnivores. Nature has all the stuff built into it. Nature has parasites, you know. There's, there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of aspects of nature that are very, very cruel and indifferent towards well, The heart feelings. of what you're getting at is that for you to sit here and say, I go off of my feelings is coming um, from a point of privilege. Because you mm. don't have to like, you know, grind it out in the wild. Like, oh mm -hmm. man, that giant bird is going to eat me pretty soon. I better, you know... It's a pterodactyl. Do what I can to avoid that, right? Or I'm gonna go hungry, so I'm I'm gonna have to like eat all these little baby bunnies or whatever I can get my hands on, right? So it's like it's a completely different perspective, you know. If you have choice, then yeah, you can say whatever you want with your feelings, and it's fine. But if you don't have choice, your feelings don't matter. Mm. You know, you have to cut those off. I'm very glad you brought that up because I think that that's a, that point about that in some ways ethics usually comes from a place of privilege. It really does. And if you look at it, you can see this with people. When the people who think the most about ethics typically are people who are in positions where they have the time and the energy to contemplate those things and aren't having to make choices that are more, um, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. Because uh, I've considered ethics, you know, and my life hasn't always been, you know, what a privilege. But relatively to the rest of the world, yeah, of course. <laughs> and and there is a privilege level of going, well, am I going to choose to eat this way or choose to eat that way? Versus, like you said, if you're in a situation where you just need the calories <laughs> and it's either kill or be killed or kill or, you know, starve, then that is a very relative point in terms of these uh, ethical discussions because I personally feel like um, there's nothing wrong with that survival instinct. Um, certainly at the place where I'm at now, I don't think I could commit certain acts just to survive. I, I, don't, I don't think I could. And I think a lot of people are in that place that once you've reached a certain level, you can't, sometimes it's hard to think about going back and like, you know, being more brutal like our ancestors had to be, you know, when they were trying to survive. But back then, I'm not passing any judgment on them because they were doing what they had to do to survive, and that's what they knew. Yeah, I think it's a question of ethics versus morality. Mm. You know, like maybe ethics is something that only people that are rich can, you know, people that are wealthy or that have privilege can, can stay. But everyone has morality. Everyone has morals, right? So it's like, what's the morality of cannibalism, right? If it's mm -hmm. a survival thing... Maybe you're you're out in the jungle somewhere, out in the wild, and then it really is like eat or or kill or be killed, right? Okay, that may be true, but that people or that group of people that do out there, you know, doing the rest to survive, still has some modicum of morals, right? Even if they don't have the time for sitting down and thinking about the ethics of the situation, but they have their own moral, right? They have their own guiding light, whatever that might be. Um, so I don't, I don't think that uh, a barbaric lifestyle, the way that you're describing, is devoid of, like, I want to say human soul measurements. 
You know what I mean? To, yeah. To not yeah. use these words that are so charged. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Trying, trying to, yeah, trying to go around those terms. Yeah, we yeah. walk into these situations like, is it right or is it wrong for me to do X or Y, A or B, right? And then those decisions, those thoughts still go into your mind. I would think. Yeah. Having you know lived in a, in a place of privilege and yeah. uh, wealth and whatnot <laughs> generally, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. In America. So I mean, I think that these questions of right and wrong do not get passed up just because you're not in a safe provided for place that makes sense what i think your distinction between ethics and morality is i think it is good to distinguish even though the terms are very messy i mean they're not very well defined between the two um but the way that I look at it is like in that case and like, you know, cause we've all heard the stories of like people who were stranded in a plane crash or whatever. And somebody, you know, somebody ended up eating somebody and it's, so it's, 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 it's horrible. I'm laughing, mm. but it's really funny to I mean, say it cause it's comical. so, it's so removed from reality. It's something that you joke about. Oh, I'm going to eat you. You know, it's stuff we say to our kids cause they don't believe us. <laughs> they don't believe that. Um, because it's so opposite human nature, but the way that I look at it is, I'm not gonna pass judgment on <laughs> the person who's been out there for a week. Their brain chemistry or their brain uh, system is probably not operating the same way it was before it, before that person was starved was starved for a week in the middle of nowhere, and all of a sudden, these this animalistic will to live is the thing. So for me to pass judgment on that person. That doesn't seem like something that most people would ever think that they would do. And so I doubt that that person really thought that they could go to that place, but they did because I mean, of uh, biology or, or is whatever. Really brain chemistry, though? You're, you're in a situation. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. You're, you're, you're in, a, uh, in a stressful situation for 10 days straight. There's no way out. There's no sign of hope. Is your mind, let's say that, is your brain different from day zero to day 10, hmm. right? Even you have this like this, this doom looming over you, right? So you're thinking about that psychologically, you're, you're heavily affected for sure. You know, you're definitely affected, but biologically, are you that? I think that's open to interpretation. I think I could throw out a basic hypothesis and this idea would be that the prefrontal lobe prefrontal cortex would be one of the first things that would start to go a little bit that the body would be conserving its resources more and we know that like the prefrontal the frontal lobe uses a lot of energy and i i think that after say a week or more of basically fasting uh, a version of fasting and especially people who aren't used to that they're in a different a different brain brain state um and I would also think that maybe their cortisol levels could be very high. Their, um, oh gosh, what is it? You know, their hormones are probably out of whack. And, uh, and I would think that the body chemistry is starting to dictate a little bit more than, say, their prefrontal lobe. And so they're going more back to maybe the amygdala and, and yeah, some of these more these... ingrained... Uh, uh, primitive traits certainly these kinds of um i don't know like fasting you're talking about fasting that that is going to have an effect right uh, but just because you 
because that just because that does have an effect, that isn't the only kind of situation that will induce these kinds of like psychological. Oh man, this is this is. I have to do something about this. I have to make. I have to um, act in order to continue to live, continue to exist. Right. Um, we talk about things like unemployment, right, or I don't know, self isolation or isolation. Right. You might have all the resources. You, you might have all the energy you need. There might be food around, but it's having an effect on you, and you are going to make more likely to make these drastic decisions, drastic life choices, right? So I, I just think that there are, there's more going on there than just, it's not biology, necessarily. Yeah, it's well, not it's not biology, biology leading yeah. the way, because the biology is changed specifically by the environment that the person is put in, and it's the environmental pressure, it really, but it works in tandem. You know, yeah, I mean, there, are, you there know. are markers for stress that you can measure, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's all interconnected. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I've never, uh, I don't know about you, but I've never measured someone before they became a cannibal, like in, in the moment, like say two minutes before they ate a person. Yeah, I've never measured yeah. them. So maybe, maybe we should try to figure that one out. You know, well, we'll need somebody who's willing to be eaten, but you know, yeah, yeah, we could maybe, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, we could maybe, <laughs> maybe work that out. Yeah. But, uh, but on a serious note though, um, yeah, I think that distinction between ethics and morality and as we were talking about, like, say, uh, stuff related to our diets and how we how we treat animals and, and whatnot. Um, oftentimes, I think of ethics as being more of a rationalistic way of looking at things. It is sort of a little bit more numbers, a little bit, it trends a little bit more in the utilitarian sense usually when when used whereas morality has a little bit more of a tr uh, more traditional overtones of this is sort of um the tradition that's been handed down or um it could also be sort of an internal sense because people have very deep moral intuitions as um as like psychologist uh jonathan height has indicated in his research uh with uh, moral foundations theory the people have very ingrained uh, responses uh, usually related to the emotion of disgust and I think that that's a really interesting um, bit I mean, of research research just direction doing, just making some comparisons where it's like yeah so if morality is not like you know this numbers thing that you're talking about if, but if morality is something deeper right you can describe it as traditional um, east versus west you know in the west they say follow your heart you know all the Disney movies, basically. And then in the East, where maybe it's more like, well, what's best for everyone? What's, what's, what's best for the group, or the community? That kind of thing, right? It's not really follow your heart. Like, no, don't follow your heart. It's going to like screw everyone over. <laughs> don't be stupid. Go back to the field. <laughs> <laughs> We need yeah. those vegetables or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Know? It's more like what what's best for the community for the yeah. whole self sacrifice yeah. for the greater whole. I feel like, I mm. think that's very much a um, an Eastern notion, mm. right? Versus in America, at least, there's mm. this like celebration of the people that strike out and you know they go against the grain, but they accomplish something great. Mm. You know, and there's there's that like worship of individuals, individuals, of individual kind of dream, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's like, is that better than the other? No. Is the other better than the first one? Also no. But there's there should be a balance between these two kind of concepts, I think. 
it's one of those things where uh, is it a duality or is it a polar a polarity? And I like to find ways that opposites can be reconciled in terms of polarities, meaning like um, like a polarity would be that you need light and dark, and that it's sort of on a spectrum to some degree. Polarity versus what? Um, so polarity or duality. So are these things competing against each other? Are they irreconcilable or are they two aspects of the same thing? And I'm not, I'm not even really getting my analogy straight here. So are you but there's some really good analogies for two sides of the same coin, or are you saying duality yeah. is two sides of the same coin? Polarity would be two sides of the same coin. Duality, so duality would be one cancels out the other, and they're sort of in a battle. Huh. So are these like well described and defined terms, or are you just making that up? Oh, I mean, polarities, polarity and duality are well defined terms. But in terms of using that in a philosophical sense, not it's not super popular necessarily in Western philosophy to bring that in. But in a lot of the, I would say, with a lot of the Eastern spiritual teachings, as well as some of the more, I guess, fringe Western thought as well, esoteric stuff, there's a little bit more emphasis on this. Um, Yin-yang is, is probably the best example. It's a very Taoist of the polarity. Um, I mean, masculine, feminine, active, passive. You know how they work together. makes sense to me. Um, duality. I feel like duality describes the idea of two in a, in a softer way than polarity does. Polarity sounds very extreme to me. Here's the, what it means. It's like, like the North and the South Pole or, you know, bipolar, you know. So just there's there's that, and I can see how you can think of polarity as two sides of the same coin, but just the fact that it seems so so much more hard, so much more extreme, than uh, yeah, mm. I, I I wouldn't have thought of dual duality or dualism in uh, in in a sense that one is canceling the other out, and I guess nothing happens. Mm. So yeah, so what you're getting at having no background in any kind of philosophy, I mean, it doesn't sound to me like. The, the term choices would be yeah. one to describe that cancellation. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think, um, and it was, I believe it was Niels Bohr who, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but he talked about, um, opposites being complementary. Um, actually he had a quote about opposites being, uh, complementary. And I believe it was Niels Bohr who had it on his, maybe it was his, his gravestone or there was something where he where he had that um and he had the yin yang um it was definitely one of those quantum physicists but i'm pretty sure it was niels bohr and um and it's really that idea of op are opposites complementary um which i think it could be argued that maybe not all opposites are complementary but this basic idea by no that... means are all opposites <laughs> no no but i think if you're finding the right opposites the more fundamental opposites like the more fundamental two opposites are um that they end up being complementary it's a very uh, hard thing to wrap our mind around but that's the basic what's an example concept of taoism an example would be light and dark you know we have the cycle of of daytime and nighttime and uh, during these cycles, different opposite processes are being undertaken uh, biologically and in the world. I mean, dark and, is just uh, the absence of light. Mm -hmm. But dark isn't an entity of its own accord. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, 
another good example. It's like a T. You think of the of the letter T. You know, mm-hmm. light would be the broad top part of the T, versus dark would be the point at the bottom of the T. You know, they're not balanced in the sense that they're not balanced in the traditional sense. Like an, an eye would be balanced. You know, you have mm-hmm. a broad top of the broad top of the eye and the broad bottom of the eye, right? Because they're you know they're more of these like this polar thing that you're talking about. Yeah. But light and dark aren't opposites in that sense. They're not complementary at all. They're just, mm. they're, but they are very different. Mm. You know, they're different, but they're like they Their have difference is defined cyclical. by each other. Or actually, yeah, dark is only mm. defined by light. Yeah, light is not defined by dark. Mm. So that's very true. The well, actually, lies underneath the relationship between them. Well, actually, uh, isn't it said that dark is the absence of light? Correct. That's what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, that's a very good point. Like that may not be the best example of two direct opposites. And I think part of within even that whole dialect dialectic of opposites are complementary. There's this idea of oneness underlying it. So that breaking down of terms and saying, well, they're not really opposites at all is also in line with Taoist teaching. It's that these opposites appear and they appear to be completely separate, but they're cyclical and have this sort of complementary way of producing everything that we experience. And I do think like the binary principle that most most of life can be looked at in terms of uh, interplay between binary systems is a pretty good basic way of understanding a lot of things. Like if you think in terms of yes and no, light and dark, on or off, there's just this really ingrained thing in the brain to think of things in uh, one or the other. It's even encoded in Aristotelian logic that uh, the principle of uh, non-contradiction, it can't be both, that's a binary way of looking at it. Like it's either this or it's that. This exclusion principle, you could say. I mean, when I think about opposites being complementary, right, uh, what I think about is like an acid and a base, you know, a hydroxide ion and a proton, right? just like an oxygen atom and a, I guess, two protons. No, just two, you know, it's just oxygen atom and, and proton. And then you have a pro, another proton coming in, right? And there, one is positively charged and one is negatively charged, right? From the other, become water, and they're perfectly balanced. But until that point, you know, they're, they're complete opposites, just in, like, electrical charge. So, in that sense, one of these things is not defined by the opposite of the other. But mm-hmm. they each have their own intrinsic quality, right? Mm-hmm. And only when they come together do they become something different. So, I think that's more what I would think when I would think mm. of You're thinking, balance. yeah, more like, more like chemistry. Like, yeah. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, yeah, there's I mean, so many, there's so many layers to that. And I think whenever a lot of these ideas and concepts i'll i have a strong intuitive leaning towards them but oftentimes when you present them in an analytical sense and i would i would say i would say this just completely honestly like they can neither be defended or defeated on pure logic alone because it's more of a way more of a lens through which you're viewing things than it is actually the thing itself i mean it's all irrelevant it's all pointless I think I think though I think <laughs> I think philosophy matters though. I mean, I I think uh, certainly you're going to live a different life if you're embracing, say, a very Taoist philosophy versus, say, um, 
if you're living your life more in a you like a utilitarian say following like um not to put them necessarily as opposites but let you know like uh like if you're a hardcore follower of uh, Jeremy Bentham's philosophy well you're and utilitarian these two complete mm. these two different ways of looking at things that have different faces right mm-hmm. whether they, these faces cancel each other out or these faces complement each other right mm-hmm. one is fundamentally optimistic which is the, the, the <laughs> polarizing view and the other is pessimistic which is mm. the dualist view right mm. so yes absolutely of course we should look to find the best of those that do not agree with us mm. or the things that do not that don't do what we do mm. so that we can all work well together and that's your your polar view right yeah and that's of course the best view Right. In if terms you of practically some, speaking, if yeah. If you're someone that is optimistic, yeah, mm. of course. Yeah. Right. You can't live alone, and even if you, even if you, if you lived in a place where, um, yeah, you know, so that the guy over there doesn't agree with me, so that means everything that I say and everything that I think is all of a sudden negated. That's a sad way to live. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want to live that life. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I think, um, and to add to that though, too. Um, I also will admit though too, I have that pessimistic side too, you know, so I can't, um, whenever speaking about this stuff, you know, if, if I push too hard with it, I'll find all of my contradictions because there are a bunch of contradictions in the way that I view the world as there are for everybody. And so I can't, I can't wholeheartedly a hundred percent accept that optimistic, um, lens all the time or take that on all the time because sometimes things just look wrong to me. You know, like, especially when we're talking about ethics and morality, some things just seem very wrong to me. And I don't think that it's bad for me to feel that way. Each and uh, and com- so I accept that as a part of, of my thing. And it's very hard to reconcile that sometimes with the op- opposites or complementing and the whole Taoist thing. But um, but I certainly like working with it and seeing what what it produces in me to, to contemplate that. The reason why... <clears throat> each of these ideas is insufficient it's because each of these ideas is insufficient right <laughs> optimism you could deceive yourself and think, yeah everything's wonderful but actually it's a nuclear winter you know <laughs> that could be the truth that could be the, could be the case oh yeah or you could be living in a great place and then you could see all the flaws like you're describing and you would still like oh man you know life is terrible right but that's because optimism optimism isn't the way forward right there has to be some truth in your life that guides you and drives you forward and then you see the optimistic and perhaps pessimistic aspects of both and they will help you to walk a path that is a correct one is the the most fulfilling for yourself right i I don't i don't think that being happy-go-lucky and optimistic is the way forward but given a certain set of situations a certain um scenario yeah like what's the best thing if you're working in a team i should probably find ways to work best or if you're a manager i should probably put a certain person on a certain job or a certain aspect of the job that is um reflective of his skills or her skills right so i think i think it's it's just that these words and these terms and these concepts just aren't holistic or aren't good enough they're not aren't well-rounded enough yeah. to really fully capture how we want to live out our lives and that's really what the question that you're getting at man i couldn't agree more just just everything that you just said and uh i think i think that's one reason why i do find and i'm going to use another term which is again incomplete 
but in its incompletion, it points towards something that's a that's closer to complete. And um, and one reason why I love sort of the Zen tradition, and um, to be fair, not even just Zen, but a lot of the Eastern traditions, uh, certain strains of Hinduism and um, even Taoism to some degree, uh, all of within those traditions. Uh, within most of those traditions and sub-traditions, there's a strong current of recognizing and stating very clearly that the words that we are using with these philosophically and with these teachings and the way that we're trying to perceive the world and retrain our brains, that they don't actually describe, accurately describe reality at its most basic level and that at its most basic level, you have to experience it for yourself and so there's a there's a zen teaching that says uh that zen is like a finger pointing to the moon it's not the moon it's just the finger and you have to look at the moon <laughs> to actually experience the moon rather than looking at the finger and thinking that's the moon and that's what we're doing with words is we're looking at the finger that's pointing whereas what we're supposed to be doing is taking these words and they're like sign point posts of where we can go and so it, it is a way of directing yourself. And because of that, sometimes you'll, you'll hop from one extreme to another because you got to take a left, then you got to take a right to correct. So that's the way that I see it is that it is all absolutely like, even what I'm saying now is incomplete, you know, but it's, it gets very paradoxical. And uh, I enjoy that personally at this point. So what is the problem that, what is the problem that drives us to need some philosophy? To point us at reality. I think it stems Why can't we from just live life. I think it stems from unhappiness. If we're not happy, that's when we start to think about these things. Ex existential thought, I think, it's like with Buddhism. It's Buddhism is like a the way that it's laid out. It's laid out like a um, prescription. It's like diagnosis, <laughs> uh, prescription, and um, I guess it would be prognosis. And um, that's like the Four Noble Truths, um, which I struggle even now to recall. Usually <laughs> I don't like memorizing stuff, but it's, but a lot of, uh, a lot of like Buddhism, for example, is like, hey, there's this problem and we're going to fix it. And the problem is basically like, I think it's largely think. depression. I think it's largely depression. I think Buddhism more than a lot of religions is geared towards the people who are depressive. And that's why I think I've gravitated towards that. And real quick, before we end, I want you to explain a little bit um, about your small group and um, how people can uh, potentially get involved. And uh, just, yeah, if you want to share about that. Yeah, so the small group is part of Gateway Church in Merced. So you can find the small group. Uh, you can sign up on the on the website there. And it's gatewaymerced.org. So you just navigate, connect, to us or whatever and then it's like groups and small groups and and the group is actually called young professionals group so uh, yeah you can go there um and sign up if, if you'd like i think that the heart of the group is that i want christians to be able to come together and have community with each other um i have a strong belief that christians should eat together you know we have the idea <laughs> it's biblical of, yeah it's true <laughs> like there's you know the last supper where uh, Jesus is about to die, so it gets, you know, during the the Passover meal, he breaks the bread and 
he says, you know, take this as my body. And then he pours the wine and says, this is my blood, you know. Uh, what, what do I usually say? Um, this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood poured out for, for the forgiveness of your sins, right? That's, that's, you know, the communion. So I think it's important for Christians to eat together, right, for this reason. Um, it's also important for Christians to pray together and to be in the Word together because that's how God speaks to us. Uh, we have this opportunity to intercede for one another, to ask God to be in Zach's life or to be in my life, right? That's really powerful, you know? We have that ability to, to ask God to, to be present with us. Uh, this is the, the whole experiential thing that we've been talking about. I think that's, um, it's related to that, you know? And I think ultimately, uh, like people don't, people really struggle with Christian community. You know, how do I get Christian community? What is Christian community, you know? And I've always thought that, yeah, you could read the Bible in groups and that you could call it Christian community. You could go out and you could serve the poor. You could, um, obviously you could study the Bible. Um, you could pray for each other. Uh, you could do all these things. You could sing songs together. And those are all great things, but they have nothing to do with Christian community, right? So Christian community is when Christians come together and God is also there because, you know, we're two more together in my name. You know, there I am, right? Uh, but God speaks to us through not just the Bible, but each other. And when we sit together and we share our thoughts about the scriptures or share our own struggles with the scripture or with our life, you know, that's when God speaks to, through us, to each other, right? And I, that's what I think is super valuable, right? So how can we come together and provide for each other by the grace of God? How can we allow God to speak through us to, you know, build up our our fellow Christian, or challenge our fellow Christian when they're uh, in a spot where they're not sure what to do. You know, God can do that. God can speak through us, and I think that's the most powerful part of Christian community. And that's kind of how I've, um, I try to focus the group on that. So typically we get together, we eat together, uh, read the Bible, uh, we meditate on the Bible, and we just discuss it, we talk about it, you know? It's not really a study. We don't really study the Bible per se, um, but we do just, talk about what we've read and we ask questions and uh, we try to see where that or see what that scripture passage has to speak about our life you know yeah and it's just it's a good, it's a good time for people to um, just engage with scripture and each other and through all that with God so very cool about all right, Gabe. Well, uh, it's always a pleasure, man. And uh, this is uh, this is one of many uh, many conversations we've had recently, and uh, I'm happy I'm happy about that. We always get down to some uh, pretty meaty topics, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that we enjoy. Absolutely. Both Absolutely. Of us. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for uh, coming on the podcast, and uh, take care, man. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>